We are recording today's program. Grendel in the back will be putting it up on our podcast. So if you want, if you want, if you missed last night's program, or if you want to rehear last night or tonight, you can go to iTunes, type in OC CSP podcast. We have a, we we have over two hundred presentations up there that you can enjoy. Our program today in this month, we have three programs or three, three 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 thematic programs ties into some of the themes we're exploring during our eighteenth year. Uh, one of which is um, our origin story as American Jews, and uh, that's today's program. And yesterday's program, we are actually going to Lithuania and Poland, July 7th through 18th, and uh, we have a hard limit on how many people we can take, which is about 33. We already have 31 people who have registered. We will be taking people if you want to join us on a wait list in case we can get some extra rooms. Uh, we are not staying in, we're, I tried to stay in interesting places, so that, that's why our program is limited to the number we can take. And outside is a itinerary of what we'll be doing. It's a CSP-style program, so it's not, uh, it's not just seeing outside of buildings. You'll be meeting with uh, people who are changing facts on the ground today in Lithuania and Poland. We'll be going back a 1,000 years. Of course, we'll be uh, addressing Holocaust situations, but it is not a, a uh, gloom and doom Holocaust program, although that is a piece of the puzzle. It's really a 1,000 years of Jewish history. Unless you're Sephardi in the room, this is where you come from. This is your inheritance, and uh, that's what we're doing. So that's the theme we're covering yesterday and today. We have Samuel Heilman coming, Heilman coming November 12th. He'll be here in the Federation campus talking about the story of five Hasidic dynasties in America. Many of you have attended one, two, or three of our trips to New York City. On each trip, we spent a day in Brooklyn visiting with one Hasidic sect. We spent time with Chabad in Crown Heights. We went to the Satmar Hasidim in Williamsburg. And this past uh, month, uh, we went to Borough Park, in which we spent time exploring the Bobover Hasidim and other sects. So Samuel Hyman is the world expert in American Hasidism. He'll be talking about five of the American dynasties, and I hope you will join us. We are also very happy to be uh, celebrating it's our first annual, what do we call it? First annual program, Memory of Bernard Gilmore, sponsored by the Gilmore family. Where's Phyllis? There's Phyllis. Phyllis invites you all to come celebrate the memory of uh, Barney um, on November 29th, which is a Thursday at lunch. The topic is found in translation, Foreign Songs and the Creation of, Is of Israeli Musical Culture. And the Gilmore family is underwriting an Israeli lunch for all of you. Uh, obviously, uh, the program is limited because of uh, the size of the room. So those who register first will be able to attend. We want to thank Phyllis and the Gilmore family for underwriting the program. And I have a flyer out there, which is even more updated than the flyer I handed out yesterday about Bernard Gilmore and his music and a special concert that will be held in June. What's the date? June 9th. June 9th, that you'll all be invited to as well. More details will be coming up. December, uh, December 14th, Paul Mendes Flor, very important contemporary Jewish philosopher, will be in town uh, talking about modern Jewish thought, challenges, and prospects. And of course, the month of January 2019, our 18th annual One Month Scholar Series, Mark Dolinger. He'll be talking about a journey through American history um, in honor, and we'll be honoring Ofra and David Wilner. I wanted to mention some of the topics. Tell me if you think they resonate. Uh, it's hard to read in the dark. Let's see. Um, BDS, another view, affirmative action, uh, quotas, and the myth of meritocracy, American Zionism, Jewish, Jews and whiteness, Jews and politics, California Jews, black power and Jewish politics, the quest for inclusion, Jews and liberalism in modern America. So we're really focusing on the American Jewish experience for the whole month. I hope you'll join us for many programs. You'll get the invitation soon. 
We'll start with the invitation to the, the, the two lunch series in the next uh, week or so. So I would suggest you sign up if you're a member as soon as possible before we sell out. And um, travel adventures, I mentioned we're going to Lithuania and Poland. We're working on a trip potentially to Italy with Mark Michael Epstein as our guide. Um, we may go back to Israel in 2020. Uh, I'm looking at Jews of Ashkenaz. Professor Kami just volunteered to lead us on a trip. So we'll decide maybe where you can take us. Maybe Israel? Well, maybe you come with us, I don't know. So um, let's get started by first uh, turning off your cell phones or putting them on to vibrate mode. I did note someone's cell phone went off last night. You don't have to raise your hand, but I heard it. In the old days, I said, if your cell phone goes off, if it's better than my cell phone, we trade. But I have an iPhone X, so I'm not trading with any of you people unless you have the XR. Okay. Who do you have with us today? We have Professor Justin Kami, who is a literary and cultural historian with research and teaching interests in Yiddish literature, Eastern European Jewish history, and Zionism and contemporary Israel. He holds a doctorate in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations from Harvard University and a bachelor's in Middle Eastern Studies from McGill University. Are you Canadian? I am. Okay. I'm both. You're Canadian-American. Did you cross legally or, legally or illegally from our northern border? Apparently, we don't send troops up there, so I'm just wondering what happens up there. In addition to appointments in Jewish studies and comparative literature, he, he also is a member of the programs of Middle Eastern Studies and Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies. His publications range from essays on canonical Yiddish writers to scholarly translations of Yiddish literature to critical introductions to new editions of works by Yiddish writers and memoirs. His book on Young Vilna, the last Yiddish literary group in interwar Poland, is forthcoming I guess we had an introduction to it last night. So if you were there last night, that's the subject of the book. By the way, I emailed all of you, whether you were there last night or not, some um, handouts, well actually, not handouts, some research I did into um, some of the materials. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, he's currently, did I mention, okay, he's currently working on an English edition of Abraham Sutzkever's Vilna Ghetto, one of the earliest Yiddish Holocaust memoirs to describe the destruction of a Jewish city. In addition to his courses on Jewish literature, history, and politics, Professor Kami has guided Smith students and alumni abroad to study the religious and political history of Jerusalem, environmental challenges in Israel, the history and memory of Yiddish land and Prague through the ages. In recent years, he has served as a research fellow at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, the Webb Family Visiting Scholar at the Goldreich Institute for Yiddish Language, Literature, and Culture at Tel Aviv University, and Mellon Senior Scholar on the Holocaust and Visiting Professor of English at UCLA which for many of you who don't know is right up the street on the, 45, on the uh, 405. As I explained to Professor Kami, if you go during rush hour, it's two and a half hours, and if you go without rush hour, it's about 45 minutes. <laughs> Hopefully you explored the latter. He's a regular guest faculty member at Yiddish summer programs at Tel Aviv University and the Yiddish Book Center. In 2006, he was awarded Smith's College Sherrod um, Prize for Distinguished Teaching. Anybody here from Smith College? Graduates? Kids graduates? Grandkids? People here do not go to Smith. Maybe you can, maybe you can make a pitch as to why. I think it's seen as not the most Jewish place, but it's very far away, you know. Probably got a high tuition. Yes, well, of course. It's a uh, private liberal arts school. So please join me in welcoming Professor Justin Cammy to Orange County, California. Thank you so much. I had a great time uh, yesterday talking about the cultural history of Yiddish, and I thought that today I would turn my attention a little bit to debates, maybe even fights, controversies about Yiddish today, because what would, what would our community be if we didn't have things to actually discuss and 
fight about robustly uh, because it's a community in which and for which culture actually matters. Uh, it's also great. Uh, I really think it's important as uh, colleges and universities increasingly come under attack for not being relevant or for the humanities being out of touch to have scholars and faculty members uh, balance their commitments to both their actual students, uh, and I have wonderful, bright, smart, um, articulate uh, women uh, at Smith, which is one of the seven uh, historically sister colleges. And uh, similarly, I think it's really important that we talk to members of the community uh, at large so that our work remains relevant and people understand what we're doing in colleges and don't necessarily assume that what we're doing is what they hear about uh, on certain networks or from people who don't necessarily um, aren't interested in the history and culture of ideas at the present moment. So uh, today I want to talk a little bit about um, Yiddish and where we are here in the United States especially, but um, perhaps even more broadly. So you see a slide before you, say it in Yiddish, no other phrase book for travelers contains all of these essential features. It's a small little book, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave time at the end for you to ask any question you have about Yiddish in general. Yesterday we had a great question about how old Yiddish is and where it comes from, so we can continue uh, that discussion as well today. More? Yeah. Got it, everyone can hear me? Great. So in the summer of 1997, there was a very heated exchange that took place online among the subscribers to an online chat group called Mendele. Mendele was the pen name of one of the founders of modern Yiddish literature. For those of you who know about Yiddish literature, there were three classical founders, Mendele, Sholem Aleichem, and Peretz. Very conveniently, Yiddish literature's three founders were each located in a different part of Eastern Europe. So Peretz represented Warsaw and Polish Eden, Polish Jews. Shalom Aleichem was located in Kiev, so he was really central Ukrainian Jewry. And uh, Abramovich Mendele was a transplant who established himself in Odessa, also at that time in the Russian Empire, now in Ukraine, but nonetheless a completely different city that had uh, known as the Wild West of the Russian Empire. And there was a chat group uh, in the early 90s that established when the World Wide Web came about for people who wanted to discuss, mainly discuss, sometimes argue, about Yiddish literary history. And on this chat group, um, there was a huge discussion about this book or about an article about this book. So how many of you are familiar with the Pulitzer Prize winning writer Michael Chabon? Right? So, so how, what, what have you read by him? The Yiddish Policeman's Union, Adventures of Cavalier and Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Cray, yeah, Wonder yeah. Boys. Wonder Boys, the book about parenting. The book about parenting, okay, a, rec a recent book about Israel. <coughs> um, so a controversial figure today in the American Jewish community, but also a controversial figure perhaps unwittingly then, because he wrote an article in what was the magazine of the Smithsonian Institution, saying that he had come across this book randomly in a used bookstore, and it was the saddest book he'd ever seen. And he writes um, the following, quote, no other phrase, well, this is what the book advertises about itself first. No other phrase book for travelers contains all these essential features. 1,600 up-to-date practical entries, quick word substitution for every need, extensive food lists and menu guides. So for instance, if you bought this book, 
you would be able to ask oneself, you'd be able to ask yourself when you came to the customs and border agent in Yiddish, ot is mein pass, here is my passport. Or if you broke your leg and you needed an ambulance, you'd be able to ask in Yiddish for an ambulance and somehow something to bandage up your leg and to put it into a cast. Now, Chabin was curious about this book because he wrote, when was this book published? When do you think it was published? Where do you think it was published? Okay, so it's an American book, very good. When do you imagine it was published? Pre-war or post-war? Post-war. So it was actually published in 1958. And Chabin in his article writes the following. Where in 1958 did the authors or publisher imagine that an American reader would take such a phrase book for travelers? In which country? Or to which region of the world would such a book be imperative, where everyone from the barber to the bailiff only spoke Yiddish? And his essay dared to suggest, quote, a Yiddish phrase book is an absurd, poignant artifact of a country that never was, an entirely futile effort on the part of its authors, a gesture of embittered hope, a valedictory daydreaming, a utopian impulse turned cruel and ironic. Well, it didn't take long for those Yiddish aficionados on Mendele to tear into Chabin. Several of them called for his excommunication from the Jewish community. <laughs> Others told him that he didn't know what he was talking about. But in fact, when we actually think about this book, it's really a useful introduction to the broader theme that I want to talk about today, and namely the transition from Vilna be, uh, from, from we talked about Vilna yesterday, uh, from Yiddish being a vernacular language, a widely spoken language, to what my colleague Jeffrey Chandler has called a post-vernacular language. That is a language that still exists, but doesn't exist, namely. Uh, in its most important way to be spoken as a way, as a primary means of communication, but as a post-vernacular language, after being a primary means of communication. So what does it mean for a language to be post-vernacular? Well, we'll get to that in a few minutes, but we see here in Chabin's argument something of what Chandler and others have already discovered, that somehow in the 1950s, 60s, and especially after that into our own time, Yiddish moved from being a spoken language that is something that you could effectively communicate in, into an affective language. That is something to which we attribute a certain emotional resonance. So we have this strange situation in which we hear of many American Jews saying, oh, I love Yiddish. Uh, I want to give money towards Yiddish. I want to save Yiddish. And then you ask them, well, do you know Yiddish? No. Why would I know, you know? Why would I know Yiddish? So, nor so normally, something that we admire, that we desire, that we love, we then want to possess. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but we, we, we strive to own it, to make it part of ourselves. But an affective relationship to something means that we can project certain fantasies about the way the world should be, or perhaps the way the world was, or we want to imagine it was, onto not only a language, but the objects that are represented by that language. So we have here a very interesting situation. Now, why do you think people published such a book in 1958? The first question is, is Chabin correct? Do you need a phase, phase, uh, phrase book for travelers in 1958? No. Where it would be necessary. 
No. And he writes at some point, even if you went to the Lower East Side in 1960, there's no place where you would only be able to speak Yiddish, and if you didn't have this book, you wouldn't be understood. And certainly on the Lower East Side, you wouldn't have to speak to government officials or to police officers <laughs> exclusively in Yiddish. But people put effort into this book. Someone edited it. Someone wrote it. Yes? But the, the camps were still being uh, emptied out close to 58. So there were a lot of Jewish people coming out into the States. They would have spoken Yiddish. They would have. So, so, the, so the difference is, it's not that this book is making the argument that there were no Yiddish speakers in the world. It's that when you buy a book saying, say it in French, say it in Hebrew, say it in Greek, there was a whole series of this, right? The assumption is, and this was before the internet, right? That you're going to a country, it's not globalized English at the time, where you might actually need to go through a book and go to the restaurant area and say, please, I would like to order steak. And it provides a translation. There was nowhere in the world, Chabin is arguing, where such a book would be necessary for Yiddish. But Yiddish speakers, and this was edited by a very famous uh, member of a, of a very famous ling Yiddish linguistic family, were attempting, one might say, to create the illusion of a Yiddish world or a Yiddish state or some type of Yiddish political and cultural construct that did exist. That is, it's an exercise not only in artifice, but also perhaps even an exercise in Yiddish or in Yiddishist fantasy. And I'll show you a number of those. Maybe we could go to the next slide. We know that it's not only that text is portable in Jewish culture. Uh, many people have talked about the real Jewish homeland being text, right? And because Jews exist in text rather than in space or in specific place, that might be one answer to their ability to survive amid very different historical circumstances over a long period of time. But we also know, or the argument has been made, that language is homeland, that Jews in some way exist in their languages, languages produce culture, and culture becomes perhaps an alternative to the seediness of political statehood. So here I'm not making an argument about Yiddishism and diasporism versus the wisdom or non-wisdom of Zionism. That's not my interest and my politics are, are well known about my affections and my long-term presence and, and visits um, to Israel. But I think that there is an argument that, is, that was resonant historically and that perhaps is on the ascendancy now that essentially asks the following question. If the Jews have some type, I'm saying if, if the Jews have some type of special history or perhaps even special mission in history, perhaps the uh, argument that the normalization of the Jews demands that they become like all other peoples and that becoming like all other peoples means that they need to have a state like all other peoples who deserve a state. Perhaps, in terms of certain Yiddish thinkings, that is not necessarily a correct reading of history. That perhaps the genius of Jewish diaspora and survival in Jewish diaspora has to do with the fact that the Jews were not centered in a particular place. That when you think of all ancient peoples in the world, have you seen any ancient Greeks walking around lately or any ancient Egyptians? That is people and empires that were tied to a specific place, no matter how powerful they were, no longer exist in history for the most part. Yet certain peoples like the Jews who were diasporous, minority, integrative, able to adapt to certain historical circumstances, they were able to survive over time. So that when we think of the question of Yiddish, especially today in the 20th and 21st centuries, we're also 
entering into a very interesting argument among Jews about the wisdom of diasporism versus statism and where the real center or homeland of the Jews is. And that's why even though there never was a Yiddish independent state, if you ask Yiddish-speaking Jews, there of course was what they would call a Yiddish land. And in that sort of formulation, a Yiddish land is a transnational homeland, not state, where Jews live, where they are united by language and culture <coughs> that transcends state borders. So we see this map over here, and those of us who don't know Yiddish, I can, it says Yiddish, superimposed mm -hmm. on a, a map of the globe, and it reads, von Vilna bis Buenos Aires, von Tel Aviv, und bis New York, hat euch gespreit sich nes von Deures, das Kinigreich von Yiddischen Wort. So from Vilna to Buenos Aires, from Tel Aviv to New York, the miracle of generations, what has spread? The kingdom, and they use that word, Kenigreich, the kingdom of the Yiddish word. There's this sense that Jews don't, that, that, that if you are really uh, tied to Yiddishkeit, if you are really tied to Jewish humanism, then the structures of statehood, in fact, get in the way of being able to realize perhaps a transnational or a global sense of Jewish um, culture. And we see this not only in this poem, this goes back to the very origins of modern Yiddish culture. If one looks at the introduction to the Shtetl book, introduced by um, my colleague David Roskis, uh, one anonymous uh, contributor to that text says the following about Yiddishland. It was a kingdom stretching from Amsterdam to Shklov and from Strasbourg to Odessa. Geographically, it was among the largest empires in the history of Europe and lasted for hundreds of years, all without a king and without a parliament, an army or a civil service. In fact, it only existed in the minds and in the mouths of its speakers. It was a land of language made up only of words. So what I'm trying to suggest to you is there are alternative visions of history and of the Jewish future that Yiddish was, and, and Yiddish speakers and ideological Yiddishists were deeply invested in. This idea of a kingdom or a landscape or a homeland of language and culture that would allow Jews to continue to exist where they already were in place and not necessarily have to move either through emigration or through statehood building efforts to somewhere else. All of which to say, and this is really the key, this is where students and I really get into battles and have great conversations. In the mind of people who think this way, language, not land, is constitutive of peoplehood. It's language and not land. And of course, this was always necessary because of the very anxious Jewish relationship with land and with power and minority. It's very easy to come up with a way of thinking through one's relationship between language and power when the Jews either aren't in control of their historic homeland or feel themselves more at home in places like Poland or Russia or Western Europe or in America than perhaps they do elsewhere. So you develop an alternative way of thinking about what is the defining feature of peoplehood. And of course, part of that has to do with portability. These are two slides by uh, an early Chagall, not the Chagall that we know now, but this is from 1920. 
And you see here a whimsical interpretation of a series of houses on a body with human legs. And in the middle, written in Yiddish, because Chagall was a fluent uh, Yiddish speaker, he does this illustration for an avant-garde book of Yiddish poetry. And uh, a human figure, you see the little guy in the middle, popping out of the window. And with an accusing finger, he utters this one uh, line. What's the use of all this clarity? And the image, in a way, provides a context. That is, what am I really seeing? I'm seeing the face of Europe. I'm seeing the face of history. I'm seeing the face of the contemporary moment. And what is he actually doing? He's putting his home, his houses, on his actual legs and leaving. That is, there's a portability to where one is because so long as you have your language, you can be home wherever you are. Home doesn't depend on a specific plot of land or territory. The home is walking. Yiddish is being spoken, so home is portable. Next slide. 1923, we see a similar uh, image. Of course, these are very images that might uh, be very familiar to us in thinking about the shtetl and, and in the old world. Here we have from another book of Yiddish poetry um, a text that says, to all of those cut down before their time in Yiddish. And also, you see the man leaving. So what I'm trying to suggest here by images from 1920 and 1922 is that the discourse about either the murder or the death or the dying of Yiddish predates the actual murder of Yiddish. That is, Yiddish speakers were already concerned at the turn of the century and in the aftermath of World War I about the fate of Yiddish and about the fate of Jewish migration and what migration would do to Yiddish culture. This is not something that we should impose upon the immediate aftermath of World War II. And those of you who studied Holocaust literature will certainly understand and appreciate that in Yiddish literature, Holocaust literature really begins as a response to the pogroms and to the massacres of Jews in World War I. Everything by the 1920s, all of the tropes that will exist in Holocaust literature written in response during and in response to World War II was already written in response to World War I. That is, Holocaust literature is invented and comes to Jewish literature a full 30 to 40 years before it comes to Western literature, in part because of the difference between what Yiddish and this clarity that we talked about a little bit earlier might bring to us. Now, there were other ways of thinking about the relationship between Yiddish and homeland. Next slide, please. Some of you may recognize this. It's a Soviet star. Um, and what do you think this represents? Does anyone know anything about Yiddish territorialism? Yeah. Birobijan. Who's heard of Birobijan? What is Birobijan? Someone help me. So, That's right. So it was a way. It, it was Stalin's. In a way, it was Stalin's response to Zionism, and to say that if Hebrew speakers and Zionism were going to have their homeland in Palestine, then one way to co-opt all of the Jews in the Soviet Union would be to provide them with their own Yiddish-speaking homeland. It was also convenient that it was in the Far East, so you could get rid of all those Jews who were in Moscow and Petersburg, and if you could entice them to go all the way to the Chinese border, where nothing really existed, you could not only say, I've given you your own Yiddish-speaking homeland, so you don't need Zionism, 
Zionism is bourgeois, according to the communist idea, then you could also solve the problem of having too, more, too many Jews in the Russian interior. So this is just one example of an alternative Jewish homeland. And as you explore American Jewish history, there were many attempts even in the United States to establish Jewish homelands in the United States, including in the Niagara River, right near Niagara Falls, New York. Mordechai Manuel Noah established, the, the rock is still there, right near Niagara Falls, a stone for what he thought would be a Jewish state that would be sort of a sanctuary for the Jews, not only who are already in the United States, but around the world. So when you start to dive into this history, whether it be in Europe or in the United States, you realize that discourse about homeland and then it related to that about statehood was not in the early part of the 20th century only related to Zionism, but also to other forms or other possibilities of Jewish statehood that included Zionism, but wasn't uh, exclusive uh, to it. So how does that relate to where we are today and controversies today? Well, today Yiddish is many things to many people. And because there are fewer and fewer Yiddish speakers of the secular variety among us, there are fewer and fewer native speakers who can defend or remember what Yiddish actually perhaps was when they were growing up. So today, when we go back to my initial comment about the affective or what we project onto certain things, People project on certain fantasies about the way they would like the world to be, and they use Yiddish perhaps as one of those vehicles to project that. So to some, for instance, uh, some of my uh, students, Yiddish is exciting because it's radical, because it's cosmopolitan, and because it's landless, right? If you're someone who says, I'm not interested in religion, synagogues don't speak to me. I'm not interested in Israel, Zionism doesn't speak to me. I'm not interested in this, it doesn't speak to me. Yiddish is something that you can appropriate, because now it's sort of there as a shell, learn it, and you can transform it into what you want it to be. An example of statelessness, an example of diaspora, an example of powerlessness, an example of ever, whatever you think it was, whether or not, whether it was ever that, uh, was ever true. So to some, Yiddish is radical. To others, it's the exact opposite, especially for those who speak it today in more ultra-Orthodox communities. It is a way to inoculate Jews from the temptations of the Western world, right? So to them, far from being radical and humanistic and progressive, it's the way that you build a linguistic border around Jewish communities and children in order to prevent them from perhaps uh, being too influenced by the world around them. <coughs> to others... Yiddish is a symbol of betrayal, first of the Jews by Europe, and second of the Jews themselves, of their own languages who chose not to learn them or to perpetuate them. And to others, Yiddish somehow ties into a moral way of thinking about who and what Jews are. That is, Yiddish to them represents humanism, secular Jewish humanism of its most refined variety. So oftentimes I'm asked as a scholar of Yiddish, well, I see so many more things about Yiddish out there. There must be a Yiddish renaissance going on in the world. And I would say, I'm not sure how we define what a renaissance is. I would say that there is a growing interest in Yiddish. There are many more people interested, young people especially, in Yiddish than when I started out as a <coughs> scholar. But in terms of there being a Yiddish renaissance, that would, I think, take a, a much larger wave to actually realize. And I think that part of this has to do with, going, going back to what I began with, with this question of the post-vernacular. 
and how we ascribe certain symbolic meanings to Yiddish. So one of those ways that we think about Yiddish, perhaps, might be through the fetishistic mode. I mentioned this yesterday, and one can read about this in uh, Jeff Shandler's research. So this is one of many things that you can buy in Jewish bookstores. It's sold, and uh, I have it in my office. I put it on a metal cabinet. Students come in. They make their own words. The magnetic poetry kit, right? Oy vey, we never schmooze anymore. Um, why is this so attractive as a fetishistic object of culture? Why, why do people purchase these things? Like when you, think of, when you think of why Jews buy certain things and have them, what does this do apart from just having it? Yeah. It, it establishes a connection. So it establishes a connection. It's a wink to an in-group knowledge. It, it's a way of giving little children, because that's in you see things, some sense of Bobby and Bobby's life. Good, so it's a way of taking, so when we think of vernaculars, right? I just said a sentence. When we think of vernaculars, right? I put in you know, pronouns, nouns, adverbs, adjectives, subjects, objects. All of those things form a sentence that then you can understand and what we call communication, right? But when something is post-vernacular, you can take individual words and the individual words then come to represent an entire system, right? So it's a semiotics, the fancy way of saying of understanding. So instead of actually being able to say a sentence about one's grandmother, we can just use the word bobe, right? We can do, maybe do a slide there. You can see some of the words that are there. I, I, I. These are not the highest forms of Yiddish. I, 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 balabos, milch, chale, shmegegi, shegitz, shidich, shlamazel. Oftentimes, and this is the critique that scholars of Yiddish and uh, aficionados of Yiddish have, the words that are circulated about Yiddish in contemporary, especially American society, come from the lowest realms of the language, especially vulgarities. And when people use those, they don't even realize that when they're using those Yiddish words, that if they were used in actual proper Yiddish company, it would be uh, the most vulgar way of speaking. So in a way, this, but this also says something, going back to some of my comments yesterday, about the degree to which um, the Jewish relationship of, with language has shifted. That is, those who respect a language will choose to relate to it in some type of um, polite and, let's say, respectful way. Those who don't know anything about those who are culturally illiterate in a certain system will grasp towards remnants of it. But what oftentimes comes about is only the weeds rather than the actual grains and rather than the actual fruits. So this is one of the uh, problems or one of the dangers of engaging in this type of post-vernacular currency, that the more people are interested in these things because they're funny or because they're jokey or because they make us feel good about ourselves, the more we purchase them, the more we purchase them, that's all that's produced about or in Yiddish. And then all you have of Yiddish are these remnants that are sort of disconnected from a system, a linguistic system, and remain as individual words that we can sort of uh, talk about or insert into a television show or into that everyone laughs at. So one of the obvious um, things that we, that we know about is that people assume that Yiddish is funny, right? That Yiddish somehow is funnier than other languages. But that's not true. Linguists will tell us lang there, there is no such thing as a, one language that's funnier than another. People might be funny or the way we use language might be funnier or more ironic or more satirical, but languages themselves aren't any funnier than a table is funny. But 
You can talk about anything in the world in Yiddish. If I started speaking Yiddish, even if people here didn't know anything, and I started speaking, the sound of Yiddish would make people laugh. And at a certain point, this also shows something about a distorted, effective relationship to it. That I could be telling you the most horrible story, the most tragic story in Yiddish, and people ah, would laugh. Because the sound of Yiddish itself becomes a type of therapy for a broader cultural loss. And we know that sometimes we laugh when we're anxious. So what happens is the psychology of displacement, of not possessing that language or feeling guilty about not having that language, then produces a response of laughter that then is imposed on Yiddish and the assumption that Yiddish itself is funny. When we know that Yiddish is as funny as, as, as other things and Yiddish was actually very serious uh, in and of itself. This is also an example of the fetishization of Yiddish. This man is wearing a t-shirt that says Yiddish. So I looked at this t-shirt at one point, it was very interesting, but when you think about it, it's a rather odd statement, right? How many of us walk around wearing a shirt that says English or French? We might wear a shirt that says England if we visited or if we're rooting for a team, right? But, or France or Israel. But how many of us, how many, how many of you have seen people walking around on the street carrying a bag or wearing a shirt that says Hebrew? It, so the question then is, what is this as a cultural object? It's an advertisement for something that's a little bit out of the ordinary. And that is an advertisement towards other people who might like Yiddish or know Yiddish or want to speak Yiddish that I actually know Yiddish, this person I, I'm interpreting this as, as being, and that somehow uh, you're being invited to join a closed community that others might not be able to participate in. And notice that it doesn't say Yiddish in English letters. It would be very different if the shirt itself said Yiddish in English letters. But it says Yiddish in the olive base, which presumes that it's really for an in-crowd of an in-crowd. You have to not only know how to read the alphabet, but you have to know what the meaning is and how odd and what the invitation is behind why someone would parade around with a shirt that says Yiddish. One of my favorite bags at the Yiddish Book Center, which is just around the corner um, from where I teach, um, they sell a lot of these bags to donors and people who visit the Yiddish Book Center. It's a canvas bag that you can take to supermarket or Trader Joe's, whatever, and the bag says schlep. <laughs> right? because that's what you're doing. You're actually schlepping. But when you actually turn your mind around, imagine if Trader Joe's or Walmart carried bags that you paid good money for that said, carry. Right? So, so the question is, well, what is this doing? It's, it, it's sort of a wink to other people who will see you carrying the bag that not, you're not only carrying, but you're carrying Jewishly. You're carrying with a certain intention and cultural affiliation. And all of these things are part of what we might call Yiddish memory sites. So I'm going to talk a little bit now, we've talked about the fetish or objects of Yiddish, perhaps a few words about the institutionalization of Yiddish. And certainly one of the great, uh, one of the most amazing achievements of recent American Jewish history, one that I think will be remembered when historians write about this period of American Jewry hundreds of years from now, is what happened uh, right down the street in Western Massachusetts at the Yiddish Book Center. Because here we have the example of an institution that saw an answer to a problem. Namely, that there were a lot of people who were aging, who had Yiddish books, a lot of children and grandchildren of those people who didn't want those books because they couldn't read them. And these books were being thrown out. So one is a problem of what do you do with all these books? Jews don't really like to throw out their books, especially when they're printed in the Jewish alphabet. One problem. The other problem was that the 
eventual founder and president of this institution was a graduate student trying to learn Yiddish. And you couldn't buy Yiddish books. So the idea was to create a book transfer institute where people who had books would donate them and students who wanted Yiddish books that were out of print for years or decades could actually acquire them. Now this has transformed itself into one of the great independent cultural centers of the United States. It has rescued many, many, more than a million uh, Yiddish books. And even more than that, if I'm not incorrect, recently it was the case, Yiddish is now the first language that is mostly digitized in terms of its literature. And that's quite curious, right? When you think of all the literatures in the world, that Yiddish might be the one that has the greatest degree percentage of digitization. Now, part of that might have to do with it's a smaller literature, so there's, it's easier to uh, grasp, to, to, to scan all these books. But it's quite amazing that one can now go on to the website of the Yiddish Book Center, look for a book that's long out of print, click, and you can download it and print it out in your own home, all for free. So this is part of the way that the genius of American Jewish history and culture and communities and institutions and donors figured out a way to make Yiddish into something that could be read again and disseminated. And just as now they have gathered so many books, now the next stage in that institution's history will be to translate them. How do we make these communicable to people who don't read Yiddish or perhaps don't want to read Yiddish? Uh, next slide. This is something that hasn't been, this is a picture of the Yiddish Book Center built architecturally to look designed to be influenced by the wooden shtetls that existed in Poland. Next slide. This is the one that I love that's even more curious. Uh, a while ago, there was an effort, an idea, to create a virtual shtetl in Rishonetzion, Israel. Just like we have Colonial Williamsburg here, right, where people dress up. You know, so not virtual, a real. A real, a real one. Well, a real shtetl. Well, it's not real. It's virtual in the fact that it's not real, but it's but not, it's not a, online. A place you go. Visit. A place you would go visit. So this understanding that would be great for both Israeli right. school children to know a little bit about Eastern European Ashkenazi history, and also great for the many tourists who come to Israel to be able to go to this, as you sure. imagine it, world uh, <laughs> that was the shtetl. The land was given. It has never been built. And when you think about it, I'm trying to get us to engage in certain thought exercises, the whole, the whole conceptualization of this is rather odd. First of all, why would you have a, a, when you have Colonial Williamsburg, it's in Williamsburg. It's where the history took place. If there is going to be a shtetl that's supposed to bring you back, then the real people who should be building that shtetl as memory scapes are either the Poles or the Lithuanians or the Ukrainians. But there's even a greater question. How odd would it be? to visit a shtetl in Rishon Lezion where none of the people who were the actors could speak Yiddish. Because one of the things about going to Williamsburg is that people there are still speaking English. It may not be the English they were speaking during colonial times, but it's the same language. This would not work in Israel for a variety of other reasons. To have you know, Israeli workers speaking Hebrew and talking about the shtetl. And, but, but it was another exercise in perhaps heritage travel, fantasy, commercialization of Yiddish, when Yiddish itself um, can't, uh, can't defend itself. Next slide. Here's a uh, puzzle that one of my students created. I told them to create a game, a fetishistic object. Uh, and they created this object that was called Welcome to Yiddishland. Uh, and what's really interesting, what I wanted to see was what undergraduates with a limited knowledge of Yiddish and Eastern European Jewish history thought of Yiddish. 
So I'm going to have to move away from the microphone for a second. Is this working? The second one? No, it's not working. Okay. Pick up your mic. I'll pick up this microphone. To read to you, thank you, perfect. To read to you what they say. Well, actually, I can't see because it's not focused enough. Can you see there what it says? No, that's too On the small. slide, too small. So, so, oh, so these are my favorite one. Blood Liable Lake, right? <laughs> um, there was another one where they come to the city. Uh, another place where they bake matzos. That is very, very basic cultural knowledge that suggested to me that what they think of Yiddishland and what Yiddishland actually was is a very interesting, there's a huge difference. And it leads from an actual shtetl in Eastern Europe directly, I mean, even though it winds, but the, the, the line is linear, all the way ending to the Yiddish book center. So from a lived culture and lived experience to a museum experience or an institutionalized experience. Uh, and that's one way we can both think of how the, the wonders of Yiddish, but also the, uh, the problems of that. Here we have an example of a more local organization. Some of you might know Yiddish Kite Los Angeles, directed by Robert Adler Pekarar. Uh, they do Yiddish cultural programming in the broader Los Angeles uh, area. What's uh, a little bit interesting about this is the title of one of the slides. Yiddishkeit, he says on another slide, Yiddishkeit LA, or Yiddishkeit, is the Jewish way of life. But what is the Jewish, who gets to define what the Jewish way of life is? So roughly the translation would be Jewishness is the Jewish way of life, because Yiddishkeit translates to Jewishness. So we have here a very, very interesting tautology, that is it's circular. Yiddish is Jewish, Jewish is the Jewish way of life, and the Jewish way of life is Yiddish. But we need to figure out ways you can empty that out, and then it's up to us to perhaps fill in all of those missing um, gaps. We're going to skip one slide, skip the next one. There are also uh, examples in the contemporary world of the festivalization of Yiddish. That is the increased no notion of Yiddish as carnival. It's a way of thinking about Yiddish performativity. So you have festivals that use Yiddish, that draw on Eastern European Jewish culture, but that perhaps are organized and performed by non-Jews, and maybe even for non-Jewish audiences. So one example of this, an amazing example, is the Krakow Yiddish Festival that's been held for many, many years now in Krakow, Poland, usually at the end of June and early uh, July. Look at how packed Kazimierz, you can't, you can't get a ticket, you can't move. They bring in the best bands uh, from Europe, klezmer bands and other Yiddish folk uh, bands from Europe and also from uh, around the world. That, how long has that been in existence? It's been, I don't know the exact year, but it's been in, in existence for at least a decade, if not longer. Um, and uh, it's now the hottest ticket, one of the hottest tickets on the European cultural map. Uh, but when you actually go to, to uh, Krakow, it was very interesting to go there when I went for the first time just after the fall of um, communism in Poland. There was very quickly, again, a commercialization of Yiddish spaces. And if you went to the square in Kazimierz that formed sort of the old Jewish part of town where some of the many synagogues still exist and which one can visit, I'm assuming you're, you'll be going and visiting, uh, many Jewish restaurants 
popped up. But it was different than sort of kosher style here in the United States, right? So many of us who are engaged in questions of, of kashrut and, and uh, intellectually and also in terms of lived experience know that there's no such thing as kosher style, right? Now there is or it isn't. There's no style, right? It's the, this idea of America, kosher style. What does that actually mean? It means that it's not kosher, right? So, so they would have these Jewish restaurants, but the Jewish restaurants were restaurants that were informed by Jewish dishes that were part of the liturgical calendar, but that weren't necessarily appropriate to that time of year. So you could go in and, and on the dessert menu, it said um, haroset. <laughs> that was, that's what you would order for dessert in July, because this was a Jewish food and it's a Jewish restaurant. So we, the, the, the increase in Jewish travel... Uh, and also the increase in uh, interest in things Ashkenaz and Yiddish produced a way of deploying Yiddish in very, very interesting uh, ways, Yiddish and Hebrew, uh, simultaneously. Next slide. We also see a rise of summer programs for Yiddish. Now we're talking about institutional Yiddish. Uh, when I started, these existed, but nowadays it's not uncommon for students and retirees to go around the world. There are programs at the Yivo Institute in New York, at Tel Aviv University, at, uh, the, in Warsaw, in Paris. There used to be one in Vilna. There used to be one in Oxford. That is, when we think of creating virtual outposts of Yiddishland, we might think of the summer not only as a way of creating Yiddishland through festivals, whether it be through Klez Canada or Ashkenaz or what we just saw in the Krakow, but also through creating temporary immersive experiences in Yiddish that take the place of an actual Yiddish kingdom or state. So you know that every summer I'm going to go for a month or even a week to Yiddish Woche, Yiddish Week, where I'm going to be entirely surrounded by people who speak Yiddish. And for a moment, I'll forget that Yiddish actually doesn't exist or have power on its own, the way we think about it. So these are all institutional ways of thinking about Yiddish. Politically, I think we're also in a very interesting moment because Yiddish has also become one of the primary sites for what I mentioned or alluded to a little earlier, uh, not only radical Yiddish, not only socialist Yiddish, going back to the roots of Yiddish, but what we might call queer Yiddish. And queer Yiddish really has grown out of the LGBTQ movement and in some ways sees Yiddish, uh, I don't want to misinterpret or mis misstate it, that because uh, Yiddish itself, going back into its early history, was feminized or marginalized or victimized, and because the experience of uh, not only uh, LGBTQ people but also LGBTQ Jews uh, is similar to that, that perhaps there's a way to grasp onto Yiddish as a way to express one's own marginality. So it's a way of ascribing one's sense of marginality to something else that is marginal, and then using that as a way to become more central, to find a form of expression that you can call and claim and, and, and it speaks to you, but also can speak to audiences in ways that you want uh, to be thought of and spoken about. Next slide. We'll skip that and skip that. Uh, we'll skip that. Uh, one of the ways, we're, we're at the end of the slides, one of the things about this uh, world of queer Yiddish and of institutional Yiddish is that we've seen many, many more websites that now people can grasp onto that are interesting. Those of you who are interested in questions Yiddish, uh, I can always stay after and write it down, but there's a great new website called InGeveb, literally in the web or on the World Wide Web, which is one of the great uh, ways of thinking 
uh, in a scholarly way about things Yiddish. And there's also a wonderful podcast by a young woman called Vibertech, literally the language of women or the language of uh, people who stayed at home, that now has been totally reinterpreted as a very, very uh, out feminist uh, podcast that really looks at questions in the Jewish world from a Yiddish angle, and it's actually in Yiddish, but also has some English uh, attached to it. Now, I promised before ending that I would talk not only about the politics of Yiddish and the institutionalization of Yiddish and the fetishization of Yiddish, but also a little bit about what I want to call the Yiddish trace. And when I talk about the Yiddish trace, what I really mean is how Yiddish nowadays, even more uh, than we saw in the past, has moved into very common English language spaces whether it be in the introduction to a serious man, or whether it be in the podcast Yid Life Crisis that is mainly in Yiddish and that you can access online. We also see in contemporary American literature, many, many more people engaging with the question of Yiddish as a trace in that fiction, that is quoting Yiddish words, quoting Yiddish ideas, relating Yiddish literary history. And I'll give you the titles of four novels, each of which I think do something different. And I think one of the things that's important when you come to a community is to leave a community with something that they can continue doing on their own after a talk. So I'm going to recommend a reading list of four books for those of you who are interested in contemporary Yiddish. One, uh, all of which are recent, relatively recent. One by Dara Horn called The World to Come, 2006. Another by uh, Peter Manso, 2008, called Songs for the Butcher's Daughter. These are all American novels. Of course, the one that we mentioned earlier from 2007 by Michael Chabin, The Yiddish Policeman's Union. And a very recent one from 2016 by the Canadian writer uh, Gary Barwin called Yiddish for Pirates. So what all of these have in common is that they are books that are very, very interested in everything that I've talked about. What Yiddish is, what is Yiddish literary history, why do people speak Yiddish, is Yiddish an alternative homeland to the other homelands that Jews have, but they also do things that are very different. Because the first two novels, that by Horn and Manso, and Peter Manso learned Yiddish, uh, I believe he was the son of a priest, uh, learned Yiddish as a student at the Yiddish Book Center and at Hampshire College, and now is the director of religious, of, of, of the entire religion exhibit at the Smithsonian in Washington but knows Yiddish fluently and wrote, I think, one of the best American Jewish novels uh, related uh, to Yiddish. So what Manso and Horn have in common is that each of them are what I would call deeply entrenched in Yiddish. That is, Dara Horn has a PhD in Yiddish and Hebrew. She knows all of Yiddish literature. She studied it. She respects it. She knows the language. And Peter Manso worked with his hands and with his mouth in the Yiddish Book Center trying to access and take control of this literature. And there's a lovely line uh, that both of them have that I'll share with you. Dara Horn's book does two things brilliantly that circle back to the images of Chagall. It seems to me that what she's concerned with is that there's something that has to do with two different ways of perceiving the old world or Eastern Europe. And many of you or some of you will be going to Eastern Europe. One of those is what she talks about as the Chagallesque way, that Chagall has become one of the ways of thinking about Eastern Europe through his paintings, right? Bright colors, people floating over roofs, crooked buildings, right? She sees this as a very sentimental way of looking at the Yiddish world because Chagall, although he started out as a Yiddish speaker, quickly abandoned that world and moved to Paris and sought fame among European 
Western European painters. And in her book, she has the character of Chagall in conversation with one of the great symbolist writers in all of Yiddish literature, a writer who took the name Dernister, the hidden one, who now is totally unknown to anyone other than Yiddish readers or scholars who teach Dernister. And she puts these two characters into an American Jewish novel about what knowledge actually is. What is cultural literacy? What is knowing something or not knowing something? What is perception or misperception? And she writes this lovely line that's worth uh, remembering in her book, borrowing from a previous uh, line of Yiddish uh, literature. Paper is the only eternal bridge. And your purpose as a writer is to achieve one, tax, one task, to build a paper bridge to the world to come. So this is her, and her novel is called The World to Come. So this idea of paper and the world to come, that is writing, language, literature, that is really what uh, is, will herald the messianic uh, age. Peter Manso, deeply invested as well, is not as interested in the question of the paper bridge to the future, but interested in questions of translation, how people translate themselves into and outside and out of certain languages and cultures. And those of you who are interested in questions of translation and mistranslation might be interested in how he talks about translation when it comes to Yiddish. It's a little bit provocative. Translation is an intimate act. So much is made in our times about the sharing of fluids, the pressing of bodies, as if chemistry or anatomy were of the highest order of human exchange. But why is it not the sharing of language? Who but a writer? in a lonely room could impregnate the thoughts of so many. For a writer who has outlived his tongue, there is no other means of contact. Without a translator, who would unzip the words? I love the way he, po he sort of puts together the, over the saturation of sexuality in our culture and ties that in to the intimacy and the provocativeness of language itself and how language is like Yiddish uh, it's not a betrayal of Yiddish to translate it into Yiddish, into English. Rather, it's a realization of it in his point of view. That it's a way, it's an act of generosity on the part of a translator to actually unzip the Yiddish world, words so that they're revealed in their full nakedness and truth to English readers. It's a lovely way of thinking about it. Now, I contrast that with Michael Chabon. Because Michael Chapin has been very out in recent years about his um, diasporism, some would say his anti-Zionism, others would say his anti-occupation work, and he creates a novel in the Yiddish Policeman's Union which imagines an alternative Jewish homeland, namely that the state of Israel is destroyed upon its inception, and that refugees from the around the world come to live in a Yiddish-speaking Alaska. Right? That then has to be returned because the native population of Alaska no longer wants the Jews there. They were supposed to only be there for a certain period of time. What this book really gets into is questions of nativism, colonialism, landedness, where the Jews actually belong, if they belong anywhere. And it's become a very provocative uh, lightning rod for people who are concerned and want to think about those issues. And finally, Yiddish for Pirates. When I read this kooky book, um, a few, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, I started out, and I'll read, um, I'll read the beginning. You can see why I might have been bristling. Hello. How are you? Feh. You think those are the only words I know? Boy, chick, you don't know from knowing. You ain't seen knowing. I may be sugar crazy, but I know from words. You think I'm a fool schmageggy? I'm all words. Hello. 
If you want the story of a life, don't wait for your altercocker old gramps over there to wake up. So new, bench your fat little oiskapachter Cape Horn Tuchus down on that chair and listen to my beaking. Too often, stories in this library of lost people are told in a farmished, confused language of forgetting. But I speak many languages, and I'm fluent in both remembering and in forgetting. It brings mazel for a pimply boy like you to hear about blood and kishkas and dangerous books and stooping. It puts some hair between your ears and above your skinny dick schmeckle. <laughs> so I'm reading this as a Yiddish scholar. I'm like, this is the worst nightmare I've had of what Yiddish, of what people think about Yiddish, right? It's a whole novel. And it's nominated for, it's a finalist for the Governor General's Award in Fiction in Canada. And then I start reading it, and I realize, despite all of these problems, it's actually very, very interesting. Because it talks about Yiddish on a, 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 as a language of pirates, right? Something that moves on the sea, that sort of also is not on the land. And it also uses, you'll notice that when he, whenever he used a Yiddish word, he then immediately translated it. So you have the bilingualism of English and Yiddish internal to the text. And ultimately, the argument that he's making, I think he's meant to be aggressive. It's meant to be a highly aggressive novel that's going to put be people who don't know a lot of Yiddish are going to laugh, people who perhaps know uh, some Yiddish are going to be offended. But ultimately, what he's doing here is creating a text about piracy in modern times, really stealing languages or things from other people. But of course, we know that there's a whole history of pirates who, that isn't necessarily negative, but is also positive, right? After all, Robin Hood is a form of piracy, right? Taking from the rich and giving to the poor. So here he's also engaging with Yiddish as fetish, Yiddish as carnival, Yiddish as performance, Yiddish and all the things that we might think of. And there's so much more that one could say about the contemporary state of Yiddish. There was a great article that just came out recently in Hadassah magazine that covers some of the topics that I talked about. I didn't know it uh, came out before I uh, wrote this, but it also interviews other people, and I certainly recommend that article. And I'm happy to answer any questions or take, any, uh, take on any questions or comments that you might have. So thank you for the invitation. So let's Maybe go. We have time for a few quick questions. Yeah, so one, two, three. Please. Okay, two quick questions. One is if you can compare and contrast Yiddish with Ladino. Yeah. And second is that if, I'm not a Yiddish speaker, but Yiddish that I've learned about comes from the media. Mm -hmm. And as presented, it seems to be as if there's two languages. One is the language that you use to ask directions to get to the park or to have somebody pass you the speed. Right. The other language is a, it's like a therapist to mm -hmm. be able to um, uh, keep your values and your attitudes and your opinions and, uh, and generally your outlook in a world which is very hostile and doesn't allow you to do those things. Wonderful question. So my question, yeah. oh. my question is, is my impression an artifact of the, um, the uh, presentations that I have, or is it uh, real and important? So the, let's go to the first question, the first, uh, Yiddish and Ladino. So Yiddish and Ladino, and there are many other Jewish vernacular languages over history. If you want to go to a great website, visit right from our neighborhood, Sarah Benor, uh, a scholar of Jewish languages up in Los Angeles, has a great website on Jewish languages with maps and everything. There were many, many Jewish languages over the course of history. What made a Jewish language was, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, was 
whether it was written uh, or printed in the Hebrew alphabet or not. That made, made a big difference. But Yiddish, like Ladino, these are languages of large communities that lived at a certain place and time, so Ladino being Judeo-Spanish. Uh, oftentimes people say, well, well, how come there's not a national Ladino book center? Or how come there's not more Ladino courses being taught in universities? I think part of this is a function of funding and part of this is a function <laughs> of sort of just historical realities. First of all, there were many, many more Yiddish speakers than there ever were Ladino speakers more in more recent times. Uh, Ladino was a spoken language, but it didn't have the same degree of print culture that Yiddish had. May, most of Ladino's print culture was, in, in more recent times, limited to newspapers. But in terms of a long history of literature, both high and low, and books and modernist poetry, Ladino doesn't have that, so there's not as many artifacts to be able to um, connect with. But I think that what we're seeing is a resurgence across the board, not only in former Sephardic communities and Ashkenazi communities, but especially in Israel and here in Mizrahi communities, of people returning to lost Jewish languages as part of their differentiation within the Jewish world. That is, yes, there's one Jewish people, but there's many Jewish ethnicities or ethnic, cultural, lingo, linguistic, cultural groups within that world. And perhaps what was lost in both the trauma of migration, the trauma of Americanization, the trauma of the Holocaust, the success of Zionism, was the, uh, those, la those very languages. So you'll see now in especially Israel, very, very interesting, there are many Jews, uh, who formerly whose parents or grandparents were from Arab countries, who are returning to their Mizrahi identity and relearning Arabic, writing things in Arabic, uh, or hybrid Hebrew and Arabic, and trying to sort of figure out the world before the homogenization that Hebrew produced in the early years of the state. Nece necessarily, but perhaps to somehow correct that unwitting mistake that lost Jewish languages. So Ladino is one of those many, many Jewish languages. Your second question had to do with different registers of Yiddish sort of the, the basic Yiddish of getting directions or being able to communicate on a basic level and then the larger, uh, maybe, maybe more highfalutin, uh, experiential. the experiential. I would say that your perception is not mistaken. A part of it is a product, you know, I don't want to feed into certain conspiracies about the world, but part of it is a product that, that we know that many, many, um, we know that many writers in American popular culture come from Jewish families. Not all, but some. And they have used very, very creatively, both in Hollywood and in television, Yiddish words that might provide, in both humor and stand-up and in television, Yiddish words that might provide us with a sense or the possibility that Yiddish is really only of that first register. But I think that when you actually dig deeper and look at some of these institutions that I've been talking about, we realize that like any other major language, Yiddish runs the gamut between very, very daily domestic uh, needs and the highest forms of scientific investigation and history and linguistics, art and culture. So both are correct. I, I, I'll, I'll come to you in a second, but yes. Well, you actually answered my question. Is how comedians and Jewish uh, Hollywood brought Yiddish into general English. Right, so, so Yiddish now, in, in a way, there are certain Yiddish words that have become part of English that are both Yiddish and English themselves. And that's part of the success. I think that's both, a, uh, that's both a plus and a danger. The fact that they become part of English, but people know where they come from, shows that in some way Jews have been able to make it in the United States. But the fact that the, the nature of those words is the problem. 
They tend to be those impolite words that I used earlier that would suggest to people that all Yiddish has is that type of discourse and nothing more relevant or important or higher to be able to say. Yeah. Um, not knowing really the two languages, Hebrew and English, I'm not personally familiar with, but I'm wondering if there have been studies done on how the use of these languages or speaking um, affects the psyche and persona of people so that the groups of speakers are different. They have different characteristics of which the language is part, but you don't know how or if. So that would be the work of psycholinguistics. And I, I think it's absolutely true that how you speak a language, and not only how you speak it, but the context that it's spoken in, affects the way groups see themselves and also affects group behavior. Uh, that's why we tend not to think of language. Uh, I just wrote an introduction for a book, a, a book of translations of Yiddish poetry, and it occurred to me that one of the most interesting things about my own professional trajectory and decisions was the fact that I had been born with the privilege of total freedom, right? the freedoms that perhaps generations of Jews before me did not have, but without a Jewish language. As many, many young Jews nowadays, especially in the United States, North America, are, are not born into Jewish languages. And when you're not born into a Jewish language, no matter how you think of it, Cynthia Ozick taught us this. Here's another novella that you can read to add to the list. Envy or Yiddish in America, perhaps the greatest short story about Yiddish ever written uh, in the English language. She talks about the fact that no matter how you like it, the fact that we're conversing in English, of course it feels like our mother tongue. But it's the resonances that are embedded into the language are not of the Jews. They're not culturally Jewish. And to a certain extent, that produces certain relationships, not only with language, but the culture around it that it comes from, that is both part of us, but also alien to us. So just to, 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 to sort of tie that one up, I think there's something meaningful uh, and dignified of a, about peoples and individuals who speak their own national languages. It doesn't need to be exclusive, but there's something to be said about sort of feeling at home in a language. But, but the, um, the speaking affects your brain pattern. Mm -hmm. is, there, is that tied in, or is that a separate study? That I don't know. I'm not, I'm that, that I can't speak to. So we're almost out of time. We have time for one or two more questions. Yes, you, you had a question. Earlier, Grace. Grace. Oh, well, partly was Andrew, but what uh, propagated the uh, continuation of Yiddish in the United States was you had the Yiddish theater in New York, and of course all the Jewish comedians, Matt yes. Cantor, and all of them. <laughs> yeah, the history of Yiddish in the United States is as interesting and as fundamental as the history of Yiddish in Eastern Europe. You now, when you think of what was going on in New York in the first decades of the twentieth century. Other than the English language press, Yiddish was the second largest press in the United States. It's amazing. Uh, when you think of Yiddish modernism, there were greater works of Yiddish aesthetic writing produced in the United States that were as competitive as what was being produced in Yiddish in Europe. When you think about the Yiddish theater and Second Avenue, Second Avenue was second only to Broadway itself in terms of the number of theaters and the performances and the take in terms of box office, extremely popular. 
And I think that when we bring it up to the present moment, people were surprised, but perhaps not shouldn't have been astonished by the fact that the most the recent Yiddish adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof has now sold more than 40,000 tickets in New York. They thought that was going to be a short run, and they can't close it down. And these are audiences that don't know Yiddish. And these are audiences that aren't even necessarily Jewish, running to see Fiddler on the Roof, which was not written in Yiddish, right? It was adapted from a Yiddish series of short stories, but written in English, now translated itself back into the language and culture that it first was translated out of. It's a very interesting uh, situation. And those of you who watched PBS, uh, the recent adaptation of God of Vengeance, that was a Yiddish play and then translated into, the, into English and then performed on PBS, both, with Yiddish and, uh, both in Yiddish and in English, a really, really fascinating stuff. I think we're, 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 we may not be at a, at a renaissance moment, but we're at a cultural transition moment where things Yiddish seem to be uh, alive and interesting. But last do, question. Do you think that the resurgence in the interest of Yiddish, especially in the United States, mm. ha may have a socio-cultural interface with the fact that Jews are becoming so assimilated and therefore we are trying to gather back the tribe through the use of you. I think there's a whole bunch of reasons for it, some of which I alluded to. Some of them are exactly that, that Jews, Jews are groping towards their own cultural history as a way to reconstitute themselves. I think that uh, in young generations, it pains me deeply to say this, there's a certain exhaustion with Israel and Zionism-centered discourses in what is what, perceptions in our community. And uh, it's very, I mean, it used to be, used to be that it was harder for me to get students to take courses in Yiddish or about Eastern Europe than it was about Israel. Nowadays, it's much harder for me to get students to take courses about Israel than it is to take courses about Yiddish. And you know, people used to say, well, Yiddish, how many students would be interested in Yiddish at a small school? Now there's more students there than are interested in Israel because students don't want to touch it. It's not that they, don't know, they, know, they know or they don't know. It's just for them, it's, it's too painful, too complicated, too controversial. They're going to stay away from it. Yiddish fills that gap, partly because they perceive it before they get to my class as funny or homey or easy or not as controversial. They're completely wrong. It was as controversial <laughs> as, as, as Hebrew, and, and its politics are also controversial. And, uh, but uh, these are some of the things we bring to lay some of the baggage we bring to our relationships with the languages. And I think that there's more and more people nowadays in a transnational world resisting the idea, the growing nationalism that they see around them. I'm not talking about our country particularly, but they're, the, the students that I get uh, are very, very wary about state, statehood and nation states in general. They've grown up in an interconnected world and they see states, whether it be not only European states historically, whether it be this country, whether it be states all over the world, they see states as fundamentally um, about power and about corruption, and they're far more interested in creating bonds transnationally that are borderless, and for them Yiddish becomes a great Jewish shorthand for being able to experiment with all those things. It, it, whether, whether that they're going to come to any conclusions that will benefit the Jewish uh, world long term, that I can't speak to. But I think it's a phenomenon that's worth paying attention to. Thank you all. Thank you.